You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. At the top of the series, we talked about the right of a person to their own body. And we extended that conversation to the use of medicine. You know, should we be allowed to use experimental drugs? This is a major theme of Problematic because it's something I happen to care a lot about. You know, what right does the government have to tell you whether or not you're allowed to experiment with yourself? It's your body. It's your life. But today I want to open that question up a little further. Because here is a kind of wild thought. Not only do I think we have a moral right to experiment with our own bodies, and also a right to die if we choose to take it there. But is this kind of experimentation actually some kind of like essential component of human progress? I'm talking about risk aversion. And what does a world look like where we all just stop rolling the dice? Okay, my name is uh, Steve Fuller. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick in the UK. I'm originally trained in history and philosophy and sociology of science, and I'm known for this research program called Social Epistemology, which is about the social foundations of knowledge. I originally connected with Professor Fuller in the context of Hereticon, the now unfortunately canceled conference I was working on before COVID ended the world as we know it. His gripping kind of forbidden thought, death in the context of medical experimentation, is that in some sense a sign of a healthy culture? For a bunch of reasons, we've become an incredibly risk-averse society. Coddled, protected, stagnant. Professor Fuller and I started our conversation here, and then we got into it. We talked about political monoculture in the social sciences, identity politics, Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. our contemporary incoherence on the question of gender, and how maybe that incoherence is actually just kind of awesome. And where is this identity stuff going? Spoiler alert! This episode was recorded a few months ago, at which point I truly believed identity politics was basically collapsing on itself. I thought it was over. Towards the end of this episode, I expressed the sentiment, I think we're moving past all this. And wow, no, uh, I definitely no longer think that's the case. So enjoy this flashback to literally just March in the middle of a once in a century global pandemic when I thought things could not possibly get crazier. Ah, my sweet summer child. From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. Great. So one thing that you and I had talked about a few months ago, back before Hereticon was unfortunately canceled, was this idea of, I'm looking for a not super blunt way to say it, but the need in medical science for people to die, essentially. I mean, this is sort of how we learn about medicine. It's an uncomfortable truth, but it is the truth. And, you know, historically, it seems like people, perhaps when we were making our greatest gains in the medical sciences in terms of knowledge and practice, we were much less risk averse than we are today. And now, you know, there's this sort of national conversation about whether or not people have a right to take medicines that aren't approved yet by the FDA in times of, you know, complete crisis and if they're terminally ill and they just want to try. I'm wondering just like what you think about that generally, and then maybe we'll get into the kind of contemporary debate that's, that's surrounding it right now. Did I properly characterize your, your thinking here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. I mean, I, I published a book back in 2014 with Veronica Lipinska called The Proactionary Imperative, which is basically this idea that there is a sense in which no pain, no gain with regard to scientific and technological progress in the modern era. And this has often meant self-sacrificing and often the sacrificing of other humans and also animals, I might add. And, and in fact, the animal rights movement takes off largely from recognizing the fact of how many animals have been sacrificed 
in the name of science and technology. This is clearly true, right? So this, what you've presented as the kind of background condition by which we've made the amount of progress we've made is correct, right? But of course, as a result of World War II, and in particular, the Nazi concentration camps, where in fact people were being used for so-called scientific purposes, this led to a general rise of concern that for uh, medical research, and it's actually extended to social science research as well, so it affects my department, for example, in sociology, that there is an enormous amount of concern, you might say precautionary concern, right, that people not, as it were, put themselves in the way of harm unnecessarily. And so as a result, it, it has become harder and harder to actually try out new drugs, try out even new innovations that might have some kind of impact on the environment, and indeed to even raise certain kinds of issues with people who are regarded as vulnerable groups, which may include children, for example, and so forth. So a lot of research, um, I would say, starting in the 1970s, basically. So we're talking about maybe 40, 50 years now. It's kind of slowed the pace of progress because there are all these kinds of regulations in place. And these regulations, I think the key thing to mention about them is that there are regulations that, in a sense, the state and universities enforce, and it's kind of regardless of the kinds of levels of risk that individuals would voluntarily undertake if they were given a chance to. Right. This is to say, like, I myself probably am going to find myself in a, in a position one day where, where I want to take a drug and I'm just, I'm not allowed. That's right. No, for sure. Is that kind of what is happening right now? I mean, do you, do you have any context on the chloroquine debate? Not in that particular debate, but I do think there's a general kind of problem here when we start talking about this matter because it's illegal, right? Because it's illegal in some sense to actually try out these kind of uncertified drugs and, and innovations and so forth, anyone who does so is potentially in breach of the law, right? So there's a sense in which there's a great discouragement for any of this stuff to be made public. So everything becomes something of an urban legend about what's going on. To be honest, that's the real beginning problem. It's interesting. I mean, if, if that's if that's the environment that we're existing in, then, you know, maybe for the first time ever, the rumors that we're hearing are to be taken a little more seriously. Well, you know, this issue arises, by the way, before we get to coronavirus, this issue's always been around with the so-called smart drugs, right, which college students take. They're often the kind of thing used for, uh, you know, attention deficit disorder and stuff like that. Oh, my God. Please tell me everything you know about Adderall. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm no expert, but I'm just saying it is difficult, actually, to track exactly the impact that this stuff has because it's it's kind of quasi-illegal, right? And so as a result, you only hear rumors. And so this, I think, is part of the problem that, that we have at this point. You just have to go to a doctor, a psychiatrist, to get it prescribed, and those are pretty easy to get. So, I mean, what is the information that, that you're saying you wish that we had for Adderall? Well, the point is people pass this stuff around. Okay. It doesn't matter if one person gets it illegally, then it gets passed around to everyone. It gets sold in the black market, as it were, of university campuses or whatever. And you really don't know what works, what doesn't work because of the illegal, the criminalization of it is a real problem, a real barrier to knowledge. Yeah. So what is the prescription here? Is it just a sort of liberalization of all of the drug laws, including the sort of 
drug laws concerning end-of-life care or just medical care in general? I think this is kind of a complicated issue because we would have to take it on behalf of the entire society. And so my own personal approach is actually that I first of all believe that we need to decriminalize. That's the first point. In order to get transparency about what works and what doesn't work in what kinds of contexts. So that's the first move. It seems to me the second move is that we should get rid of any kind of global level regulation, that is to say state level or university level regulation, and actually have this on a much more contractual basis, right? Where people, they want to volunteer, let's say, to try out risky drugs, you know, that some scientist has come up with in a laboratory. Contracts can be set up between the scientist and the subject, potential subject, right? Which is subject to a lawyer has to be present to see that the, that the subject understands the risks that they're undergoing and that there probably needs to be some adequate compensation for the subject in case things don't work right. And it seems to me this is kind of the way I would wish this kind of thing to go, where everything's kind of transparent and legal, but done on a contractual basis and where there's an incentive for the information of the results to actually be shared with everybody. That's kind of what would be my starting point. I really wonder what the hang up here is, because if I'm trying to get inside the head of the other folks, it seems like the big fear, probably there's two. It's on the one hand, doctors are going to be selling snake oil to folks. But see, folks don't need to buy it, right? I mean, the the point is, if it's a contract, in a sense, part of what I'm saying is kind of like a an advertisement for expanding the legal industry, because there is a sense in which Right. Contracts would have to be drafted so that people do say, look, do you understand what you're signing up to here? And the lawyers can make sure that the scientists are sufficiently transparent. And again, compensation. Right. If things go wrong, to be honest with you, I think this is the reason why we have the kind of regulations they do, because universities don't want to turn into insurance companies. Right. I mean, I think the other piece, though, is that a lot of these I don't want to call them regulation fetishists, but a lot of these regulation fetishists, I think they're worried that we're going to lose information or something. And that if everything is legal, then what about the double blind studies? And we'll never really know if any of these drugs actually work, you know, if they're empirically sound. See, you're raising a somewhat different issue, which is at what level does this become as it were, generally available to be sold over the counter or whatever, or with a prescription? In other words, Because it's one thing to see, there are two things we need to be thinking about somewhat separately. One is the freedom of people to try out new stuff that we don't know if it works yet. Okay, that's one thing. And that's the thing where there's an enormous amount of regulation and a kind of lockdown. And then there's the other thing, which is, okay, at what point do we think that the evidence is good enough that we should just make this generally available to people? Okay, these are somewhat separate questions. Right. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. You mentioned that you work in the social sciences department and social sciences are sort of famously, there's like a sort of political monoculture. You know, I was reading the different concentrations of politics in academia and it seems like your department is very, 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 very far left politically. Well, it's left in a certain sense. I mean, this is the thing, what left means these days is not quite what it used to mean. Let's put it this way. I I would say that I think a lot of the social scientists actually endorse a lot of this kind of regulatory culture that we've been just alluding to here, because they do think that, in a sense, people need to be protected from all kinds of things, 
and that people should be understood as primarily vulnerable and that there are relatively few people in the society that actually exercise an enormous amount of power, right? So there's this kind of asymmetry of power that's being presupposed here. That's kind of the mentality, right? So I'll give you an example. At my university, and remember, I'm in Britain, I'm not in the United States, I have a student at the moment who wanted to do an ethnography, which is to say, to sort of talk to in some detail and natural setting in the school and so forth, a lot of teenage kids about what they thought in terms of the end of the world, <laughs> right? And this was before coronavirus, okay? Right, yeah, I'm sure they have a lot of thoughts now. Well, yes, exactly. They have a lot. They had a lot of thoughts before. I mean, uh, but the point is, this was regarded as too sensitive a topic. What? It's we're talking about existential threats to the civilization. No, no, seriously. So this this research, no, this research can't happen. Now it happened, by the way, fifty years ago during the Cold War. Okay, during the Cold War, there's actually a lot of research in social psychology and child development studies and so forth about what kids thought about the end of the world understood, you know, in the context of a nuclear holocaust or something. Okay. Wait, so you're saying that the topic of the apocalypse is off limits? To kids. Yes. Yes. And that's without consulting kids or consulting teachers. That's a directive given at the university level. Because, I mean, even when I was growing up, I mean, we're talking like the 90s when I'm in elementary school. We still had to learn about nuclear war and the Cold War. And how do you talk about nuclear annihilation without discussing the end of the world? It's kind of impossible. Yeah, but see, the problem is even in those settings today, because you can imagine today in a classroom, you know, high school, the teachers will get kids to talk about the end of the world, various scenarios, so forth. But I think the idea would be that the teachers actually would have quite a lot of guidelines already set in advance about how they can approach it in the classroom. So if they violate that and parents get wind of it or school boards get wind of it or whatever, those teachers can get into serious trouble. So that stuff, even though it does still happen to a certain extent, it's highly regulated. Okay, and the problem is if you're a social science researcher, right, you're likely to actually be you might say, ranging much more broadly across the topic, right? To sample students' opinions about all kinds of -of end-of-the-world scenarios, right? Like superintelligence or, you know, global climate meltdown or coronavirus, you know? I mean, there's so many things to talk about, right? That you could just sample (laughs) kids' opinions. and, And the idea is that supposedly you'd be driving the kids nuts or something. I don't know. I don't, yeah, that just doesn't follow to me. Wow, I guess I've just not been in school for... For quite a while, I didn't realize how completely coddled it had become. And it was already kind of soft when I was there. I mean, being realistic, I suppose, I'm sure that there are schools where actually quite radical and exotic topics are discussed, okay? And my guess is probably in the sort of maybe private schools and things like this, where the kind of parents and the people running the place kind of know nobody's going to go ballistic over this. And so I do think that this stuff does get taught to kids in some kind of way. But the problem is that you open yourself if a parent complains, if a local counselor finds out. I mean, you know, there are all these, as it were, opportunities where this sort of thing could end up becoming outed, as it were, right? And then that would put the whole school in trouble. What are the other sort of just consensus truths in your field that you really aren't supposed to butt up against? Okay, just generally speaking, there is the issue of identity politics. And I think the way to think about this initially is in terms of 
you know, if you're, let's say, a black person or a white person, there's a certain way, as it were, you ought to think, or maybe even more to the point, the way you necessarily think, and that there's no escaping from that, basically. Right. This is so it's turned the ideas of maybe the 60s and 70s on their head, the idea that race doesn't matter now, it seems to be essential. It's an essential part of who we are. We can't escape it. Yeah. And I think this is to a large extent, a kind of reflection of how people in, in sociology in particular, I would say actually that the, the sociologists more than other social scientists are very sensitive to this point, is that in some sense, all of these dreams about equality and everybody expressing themselves and all this kind of stuff from the 60s didn't quite pan out. And that in fact, there is still a lot of inequality in the society and the inequalities tend to cut along the way they did before the 60s. So blacks are making less, they have less advantage, even women are doing worse than men. I mean, there, there are all these kinds of issues that in a sense seem persistent. This has led to, I would say, a certain kind of cultural pessimism on the left, which is expressed through this kind of identity politics mentality. So what are you not allowed to say here? Are you, are you not allowed to say that race and gender don't matter or? Well, some black people might not want to think about themselves as primarily black, for example. Right. So that's the forbidden topic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always think it's interesting, you know, if you if you run across someone who's very much into identity politics and, and all of this and you ask him, what do you make of somebody like Thomas Sowell? Do you know Thomas Sowell? Oh, I know Thomas Sowell. <laughs> yeah. OK, well, you know, what do you make of this guy? OK, I mean, is he a race traitor? I mean, what is the pro? I mean, you know, what is the issue here? Well, I mean, even someone like Oprah, Oprah gets on the air and says, you can be anything you want to be. You have to just visualize it. And she's sort of speaking to a kind of faith. It's like this, the secret type of thing. It's a kind of an occulty, like power visualization thing, which frankly, I love, but it is totally, it doesn't seem to care at all about race. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is the thing. There is a sense in which what we're talking about with regard to identity politics is a kind of academically incubated sort of idea, which has to do with a certain way of thinking about how the last 50 years of history have taken place. What is striking me as these conversations hit the internet and sort of the mainstream is how completely obsessed with these arguments people are. They're fairly new, so you'd think people would be a little more flexible in talking about them. But it's a framework that I think the idea, and by the framework I'm talking about, this idea that our race determines most of our future, it's really intoxicating to a certain kind of leftist media person. What is that? Why is it so sticky? Because I think there is a sense in which a lot of the promises that were made in the 60s and the, this idea of what the civil rights movement was supposed to do and the women's rights movement and all these things, they've only been kind of, in a way, half fulfilled. And so as a result, I think a lot of people, and, and these are the people we're talking about, become very pessimistic and think that there is a kind of power structure, right? That anything short of a radical revolution will not be able to change. And I think that's kind of it. I mean, I think that's the only way I can understand it, because uh, as a matter of fact, of course, there has been general improvement of disadvantaged groups for the most part over the past 50 years but probably not at the rate. And I think the other thing, too, I have to say that I think the identity politics people are also responding to, and I, I alluded to this earlier, you know, if you think about somebody like Thomas Sowell, for example, is that a lot of these groups that were traditionally disadvantaged, the people kind of escaped them, okay? They sort of, as it were, 
re-identify themselves differently. They don't actually identify themselves in terms of the groups or classes of their origin. And that even includes race, okay? And that's one reason why you find, by the way, and I don't know if you want to get into any of this, but, you know, all of this discussion that we're seeing about trans, you know, transgender, even trans race, this really disturbs identity politics people. Oh, yeah. This is the enemy within for them. The trans movement is the enemy within to the identity politics people. Yes, exactly, because it kind of destroys the identity thing, right? Well, it does and it doesn't. It's it's weirdly held up as the most sacred, and yet it contains within it all of the contradictions. No, but the point is the mobility that it presupposes. What do you mean by that? The mobility of the of the trans idea, right? The fact that you can go from one race to another. Oh, right. Yes, you can change your identity. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of libertarian idea fundamentally. It is, but to sort of take it from the trans perspective, it would be like, well, we're not changing our identity. You know, we've always been. I've always been a woman. I'm just sort of changing. No, no, no. People, people have different views about this, actually. Okay. People discover, right. They discover over time that, you know, it's almost like saying, you know, I, I liked living in one country. Now I'm going to move to another one. It's not all about what it really was. The whole entire, and speaking now as a gay man, I'm going to put on my gay identity or my gay hat. I'm sort of submerged in the queer world and a lot of these conversations surrounding gender and sexuality, it is just changing so fast. Like every sort of couple months, there's some new thing that is coming out. Now, I think the big thing is is gender queer. So it's like we're not even talking. The trans conversation five years ago was exclusively about men and women who had gender dysphoria and were truly sort of mentally sort of distressed because of this, and they needed some sort of medical treatment to make their body look the way they felt, right? That's like roughly what it is. Yeah, that's what people used to say about homosexuals. Yes, well, that changed pretty fast. I mean, sort of the gay conversation, it was decades in the making. This one, over the course of five years, we went from that to sort of like anything goes, which is also like, whatever, I'm a libertarian about this stuff. Do with yourself whatever you want. Live however you want. However, it's just deeply confusing and sort of at odds with itself in a lot of ways, because now we're talking about genderqueer. We're talking about people who are non-binary. We're supposed to accept that non-binary people are also trans, but the entire point of trans is to transition. It sort of needs a binary to be a trans woman. But what about reversible trans? You mean people who have gone under the sort of treatment and then gone back? They flip back and forth? How about that? Well, they say, you know, we were just confused. It did it. And that's, I mean, listen, I don't. But why do you have to say you're confused? Why can't people just flip back and forth? Mm. Well, that's the really interesting thing, isn't it? Is that I think that there are people within the community who really believe that that is the future. They sort of both want to destroy the concept of gender. The concept of itself of gender seems oppressive to them. But then also, if you misgender someone and call them the wrong pronoun, that's the worst thing you can do. It's literally illegal in Canada. And so it's it's just a complete contradiction. Is it super essential or is it nothing at all? You're right. You're right about that. I think this business with the pronouns is, is kind of, in a way, focusing on the wrong thing. <laughs> well, I mean, which I just like, which one is it? What are we supposed to believe? And that's like, I look at this and I'm like, this is this is a really crazy conversation. I want, I am the person, I want to defend a person's right to be whatever they want. And I still am doing that, but I actually just don't think it's coherent. So it's like something else is happening here. It's just, it's just completely incoherent. I, I don't even know what people are talking about anymore. Well... I mean, I get this is this is the price of freedom. <laughs> yeah, I guess in a way it's super exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to sound too glib about this, but I do think 
you know, if you look at, broadly speaking, the history of what we would call, in a very broad sense, liberalism, right, where first people get freed from the farms to be able to go into the cities and change their class identity, and people are able to move to another country and change their name and their whole cultural identity, become assimilated. This is part of the same thing. In a sense, we're, we're really pushing the boundaries here. But I think this is kind of a natural logic with regard to the progress of freedom in the world. And I realize, you know, this is quite kind of inconvenient and difficult, you know, intellectually and socially. But I think in the end, we're just going to have to live with it. I'm fine living with it. I mean, it's not just living with it for me. I'm happy. Embrace it. Love it. Transformation, transhumanism, into it, here for it. Where I start to get upset is I don't like being told what to say and how to think. No, 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 for sure. But I think that this is only because that's kind of the residue of identity politics in the trans movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, we kind of covered the sort of contradiction within the trans movement right now itself, but then also... The way it butts up against these other identities, for example, the gay identity or just women and feminism. So from the feminist corner of the world, you have the now trans-exclusionary radical feminists. I believe the derogatory term is TERF. And then among gay people, increasingly, it's like, it's just a completely different journey to a certain extent. Like, gay people generally just needed to be allowed to be gay. I mean, there were laws that made sodomy illegal, right? You could not have gay sex. That was an actual sort of, we talk about systemic oppression. That's actually systemic. There we go. There's a system in place. It has made your entire existence illegal. Well, not your existence, but the expression of your existence illegal, the expression of your love, whatever. So get that law off the books. There we go. And then, you know, gay people can go and just exist. There we go. The systemic oppression is over. With trans people though, it's a little bit different. It's not about just being allowed to be the thing you are. It is about the rest of the world acknowledging what you are. It's the opposite in some ways where the gay journey was sort of getting the rest of the world out of their lives. The trans experience seems in some ways to need affirmation from the group, which is like a really weird thing just in general. But there is an aspect of this. Well, so it is reinforcing your point, but look at it a little differently. So for example, with the issue of the bathrooms, right? Where women are very much upset by the idea of trans women using women's bathrooms. You know, it's that kind of an issue where the affirmation of identity versus the fear of the identity of the other really needs to be negotiated very carefully. And I, to be honest with you, I think that this is a, a teething problem, let's put it that way, with the acceptance of trans. And I do think after a while, this will sort itself out. In what way? How, how do you think this all settles? Well, I do think that there will be some greater monitoring within the trans community about stuff like this. In other words, trans people will make a point of realizing that this is a problem. The parallel that always comes to mind when I think about this problem is the civil rights movement and black people. If you recall the novel from 1960, maybe, To Kill a Mockingbird. Of course. Okay, well, so this novel basically is about fear of black people. And the thing was that part of the way in which the civil rights movement, you know, Martin Luther King, but not just him, all the major figures, was that black people had to discipline themselves in a certain kind of way. Okay? And I think that the trans movement will, will get to this kind of stage as it becomes much better organized and self-conscious and so forth. I just don't think that there are folks within the trans community who have experienced the same kind of 
frankly, oppression that black Americans have either. That it's just, I think it's a, a rough analogy. No, but they seem to talk this way. They do. They've appropriated that language. That seems to be the trend. But let's be real. This is the nation. We had slavery in this nation. No, no, I understand that. Look, I don't want to go through the history of black. Look, we don't need to go through the history of black people in the United States. But the point is that if these people are going to appropriate this kind of language that blacks historically have used, then at some point, some of the more clued up members of this movement will realize the way in which the blacks got themselves out of it. I don't know what you mean by that. So you you mentioned uh, policing of behavior. What exactly do you mean? Well, so, for example, I do think that, you know, if you look at people like Martin Luther King and the people who actually managed to succeed in terms of getting the Civil Rights Act passed in 1965 and actually finally putting into enforceable legislation that blacks had to be treated equally to whites, part of what what he was doing and his people were doing, Martin Luther King's associates, were actually trying to present black people as not a threat. Right. So what are some glimmers of hope, if any, in the sociology departments concerning at least this topic? I mean, the entire identity politics thing seems to be almost like the genesis of freezing speech and keeping us from communicating and asking questions. Is is there any sign that it's ending, eroding? How are people thinking about it today? My own personal view about this, which uh, I don't know or think my colleagues share, is I think that this will pass. In other words, either through external pressure of the kind that's already being applied. I certainly know from the students I deal with, especially because I'm at a university which has a lot of international students, and a lot of this stuff really seems very parochial, right? It seems like a certain kind of, you know, in the U.S. and Britain as a kind of American-influenced country, right? Even though identity politics people think they're talking about the world, the way it appears to a lot of people outside looks very parochial. It looks like a kind of internal dispute among certain kinds of academically informed groups who, because they have a large pulpit, are actually able to spread this stuff. My guess is that, you know, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, and I don't think this stuff really has much value outside the academy. And so it just dies out. I think so. Or, you know, I mean, there are ways you can channel a lot of this stuff creatively in the arts and so forth. I don't want to underestimate the the significance of that, to be honest. But I don't think politically, you know, if we're talking about real politics, I think this stuff is much more a tempest in a teapot. Well, that's some great news. <laughs> <laughs> I know it seems awful now, but but because there, let's put it this way, there's not enough intellectual substance going on to really sustain this in the long term. Yeah, I don't think it's it seems unrealistic what you're saying, honestly. I think that for me, the height of this all was actually a few years ago. I think it was like 2017. That felt to me like like the absolute craziest moment because there was no one really even speaking out against it online. Now, I think it's like all of the people who are talking about this, who have the biggest audiences, are critics of it, really. I think the woke stuff is just, there's broad contempt for it frankly. The more people know about it, the less they like. I think Americans in general, maybe especially, really at their core, do not like to be told how to speak, how to think, what to do with themselves. It's like a fiercely individualistic society, despite everything, despite the fact that this crazy shit came from within us. I do think that we we have sort of natural, I guess, philosophical antibodies against it. And I feel optimistic in 2020 about this, at least, less so about the virus. I would say, I mean, I think one thing to to think about, and again, because, you know, maybe you're younger, you don't remember, but, you know, there were these culture wars in the 1980s and 90s. 
which in a sense, this stuff is kind of a revival. It's like the second coming of the virus, right? Yeah, this is the winter. Yeah, this is the winter, right? Exactly what we're experiencing. I was very active in all that stuff back then. And I would say that the thing that really kind of changed everything was basically external factors, okay? So economics, the economy of universities, what students go to study, right? Different kinds of programs, whether they survive or not. It is possible this issue will be resolved not by somehow the parties who are involved in the dispute negotiating something between themselves, but rather external events in terms of university funding and stuff like that. And I think as a result of the coronavirus... I was just going to say, speaking of external events, it's pretty hard to care about identity politics in the middle of a global pandemic. Well, this is the point. I mean, and it's stuff like that. I mean, so for example, I think one thing that led to a real shakedown of the first wave of the culture wars back in the late 80s and and early 90s was the change in the economy from after the Cold War ended, which actually, in a way, opened up a lot more uh, of the libertarian individualist sentiment that had been kind of seething throughout the Cold War, because the Cold War was a very state-based kind of thing. But once the Cold War ended, you start seeing this kind of renaissance of libertarian individualistic thinking which actually kind of killed the, the culture wars for a little while. You know, I think these people also need, they need like a, a totemic villain. And that was Reagan in the 80s. And he went out with the Cold War and then the housing market crash. There were a lot of things changing, but I think one of the big ones was they had a villain and he, he was no longer in office. Right now, it does seem like the identity politics stuff really metastasized under Trump. He is the focus. And so I don't know what it looks like when he leaves and someone... I mean, I think he's going to win this next election, but let's say Biden came in, right? Like, I think Biden comes in and it just, I think it just kills the entire movement because you have the entire left now who wants to defend the leader of the country and the fringe left sort of not. Then they get sort of outcast or whatever. I think right now, a lot of the moderate left people are sort of turning a blind eye because there's an alliance. It's like an unholy alliance against the big bad. I don't know. I do think it's leaving. I would like it to leave sooner. I hope that we learn some kind of lesson from this. And don't let it happen again, but I don't know. (laughs) Ideas seem to spread pretty fast these days. It's interesting because I do think this thing has got as virulent, this identity politics thing has gotten as virulent as as it has, largely because, you know, academic fields to a large extent are allowed to develop on their own. So it's kind of self feeding, okay? And careers are made by this because most of the people, you know, in terms of the intellectual sphere, are people who have been very much nurtured by the academic establishment as it is and pretty much allowed to say all this stuff in classrooms and so forth, pretty much unchecked. And and I think that's where the interesting issue is going to arise about how we organize our universities and how we interpret concepts like academic freedom. Because identity politics, even though it's trying to stop academic freedom in a certain way, right, when people object to it, nevertheless is very much the product of a kind of academia where people have been able to develop all kinds of crazy ideas to whatever extent they wish. Right. That's another thing that's going to be, I wonder how that persists in a world where an undergraduate degree in English literature costs $200,000. Here I agree with Peter Thiel. I think the university business is a bubble and it's going to collapse. Of course, the more elite places will stay around and they'll float. They'll do fine. But uh, I think you, you, you could see a serious contraction in, in higher education in the future because people realize these degrees, 
you know, they don't give you any kind of competitive advantage in the marketplace. Last thought, you mentioned social epistemology, and I, I wanted to get at least a little bit into that. What is it? What is exciting about that to you right now? And, and where do you see it moving forward and why it's important? Okay, so the idea here is with social epistemology is that it studies the nature of knowledge, and, and, and knowledge is understood as a kind of social phenomenon. You need groups. They have to be organized in certain ways. They have to be able to distribute what they produce through the rest of society in order to have any kind of influence or credibility or legitimacy. The reason why it's called social epistemology is because there is this, what in philosophy we call normative orientation, namely, it's about what we ought to do, right? How should we organize our knowledge producing enterprises, okay? And the problem is at the moment, and I think we've just been alluding to this a little bit, is that academic culture in a way is sort of in an inertial setting where, where disciplines are presumed to be legitimate because they've been around for a while and they end up just perpetuating themselves, even though it's not clear that the kinds of stuff that they're studying really cuts reality at the joints. And so every now and then one needs to step back and ask these kind of fundamental questions about what is the nature of knowledge, for whom is knowledge, and how should we produce it in a way that actually enables it to be a public good in the proper sense. This is what social epistemology is concerned about, and it uses the resources of history, philosophy, and the social sciences in order to come up with some kinds of you know, ideas about this. One of the targets, you might say, of social epistemology is the university itself, because I think, in a sense, we sort of take for granted that universities, in terms of disciplinary structures and, and the status in society and so forth as a credentialing mechanism, I think we take this way too much for granted, and we ought to be thinking about the significance of the university from a much more fundamental level, a rethink, a fundamental rethink of what universities are for, what academic establishments are for. Because put it this way, universities do primarily two things at the moment. One is research and the other is teaching. But either of those functions could be done more efficiently by separate institutions. And so the question then is, why do you want an institution that combines the two of them? Now, historically, there is an answer to that question. I don't know if you want me to go into it. Is it not just a class thing? Is this how you kind of opt into a... No, no, no. The historic reason for why teaching and research have been together, and it's been only since the beginning of the 19th century, actually, it's a kind of enlightenment function of the university. In other words, the idea being that what you're teaching, right, you're teaching the next generation of people, and they need cutting-edge knowledge, and that comes from people who also do research, okay? So in other words, rather than just reproducing the past, which is really what universities were doing before the beginning of the 19th century, universities were just basically places where people, you know, trained to become priests and doctors, and what they were learning was not cutting-edge research, they were just learning classical texts, Right. Oxford and Cambridge were pretty much organized that way till the end of the 19th century. And so it's with the modern university that you get this kind of dual imperative where people who are actually doing cutting edge research that are really going to push the boundaries of things have an opportunity to actually tell large numbers of students about this who will then be able to carry forward those ideas into the world, not necessarily in particular jobs, but as informed citizens. Okay. That's the idea, citizen education, where it's important for every ordinary person to actually know the best and the brightest ideas that are out there. And that is, I think, a really good reason to have a university. Hmm. Well, <laughs> amazing. Another conversation for another time. 
Thanks so much, Professor. Talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. You are listening to Problematic.